You're listening to Intergenerational Politics, hosted by Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi. We have conversations with amazing guests on the issues facing our country today and ask the questions all generations want answered. We hope you enjoy this episode, and once you're finished listening, leave us a rating or a comment to support future episodes of Intergenerational Politics. This is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA and also the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, the co-host of this podcast, as well as Sisters-in-Law podcast, and an MSNBC legal analyst. And because we're talking about books today, I'm going to hold up mine for those of you who are watching on YouTube, The Watergate Girl. Hope you'll take a look at that. But more importantly, at all the books we're going to talk about today with our guest. We have just endured four years of administration that unfailingly broke treaties, norms, and laws, insulted allies, initiated cruel policies, and fomented an insurrection without accountability. All of that has uh, has deeply impacted the image of the U.S. as a democracy and a world leader. Fortunately, the Biden administration is hitting the ground running and working to repair foreign relationships, restore trust in government, and make it clear that we are no longer going to tolerate dictator wannabes and human rights violators. And we have the perfect guest to learn from on all the questions that are facing us. She is one of my personal heroes, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. She was born in Czechoslovakia, moved to the United States as a young person, went to Wellesley and got her PhD from my alma mater, Columbia. She then served on the National Security Council under Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was teaching at Columbia when I was there. Um, Although I was in the law school, I did get to sit in on one of his classes. Um, That was during the Carter administration. So we both served in that administration. She was then appointed by President Clinton as the ambassador to the United Nations before becoming America's first female Secretary of State, breaking many glass ceilings. President Obama awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I look forward to talking with her about so many topics, including several of her books, including those dealing with, um, for example, how she dealt with diplomacy, including her message pins. And um, we also want to talk about fascism, a warning, Hell and Other Destinations, a 21st Century Memoir, and Madam Secretary, as well as Read My Pins. For those who know me as the wearer of Jill's pins, you can imagine how excited I am to talk to Secretary Albright about her phenomenal pin collection and how she used pins to send messages as part of her diplomatic duties as Secretary of State. Well, it's great to be with you guys. Thank you very, very much. I look forward to the discussion. Same here. We are so excited and really honored to be with you today. Um, let's begin with a topic that um, neither Jill nor I ever thought we'd be talking about in the United States, which is fascism. Um, I think fascism, fascism is a word that I think a definition would help all generations listen to this to understand. So let's start with that, both from your experience as Secretary of State, but also from your perspective of escaping it with your family as a child. So like, what is fascism and um, help our audience kind of understand that? Well, I'm glad you put it that way, because one of the problems is that people kind of toss around the word fascist um, whenever it occurs to them. It's somebody that you disagree with, or it's what a teenage boy might say to his father when he isn't allowed to drive, or, you know, it's just kind of an all-purpose term. It is not an ideology. It is a process for gaining power. Uh, And um, it is, um, and I kind of have 
obviously studied it. One, as you mentioned, it has affected my personal life. Uh, my father was a Czechoslovak diplomat uh, in 1939 when Hitler marched in with it or his troops marched into Czechoslovakia. And we then escaped and lived in England where my father worked for the Czechoslovak government in exile. Um, and then uh, later when we came home, um, they discovered that most of their family uh, had died. In, um, and I didn't know about all that, you know, how until much later, and we can talk about that. But, uh, and then we, my father was made an ambassador to Yugoslavia after the war. And then when the communists took over Czechoslovakia, we had to leave again. And this time we came to the United States. And so, um, but I do think that a definition is mostly that it is a way to gain power. And a fascist is somebody who um, identifies himself with one group at the expense of another. Um, and the other is then the scapegoat for all the problem. It is somebody who also uh, thinks that he's above the, by the way, they're all he's, uh, uh, who uh, uh, thinks that he's above the law, thinks that the press is the enemy of the people, um, and is somebody that exacerbates the divisions that are already there. The ultimate definition of a fascist is it's somebody who is willing to use force to get into or maintain power. Um, and so when I wrote the book, um, I was very concerned about things that were happening in various parts of the world in modern times, for instance, Hungary or the Philippines or partially um, in Poland, um, some things that were going on in Venezuela. Uh, but I was also worried about some of the things that were happening in the United States in terms of divisions among the people. So I went back and I decided to look at the history of fascism. And obviously Mussolini was the first fascist. And what happened was the Italians had actually fought on the side of the allies during World War I, but had not really received much credit for that. There were economic problems. Mussolini was a young, active uh, person, an outsider, frankly, who was a very good speaker and a motivator. Um, and he uh, what did the kinds of things I was talking about, which is exacerbate the divisions. Um, and the best quote in the book actually comes from Mussolini, who said, if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, nobody notices. Uh, and it's kind of a slow movement. Um, he also, by the way, did say he was gonna drain the swamp. He said it in wow. Italian. Uh, but what I find interesting, and this is something to keep in mind, is that he actually, when he became leader um, in Italy, it was constitutional because King Emmanuel there asked him to take over. Um, and Hitler, who obviously was the biggest fascist of all, he also ultimately came into power because uh, he was asked to take over uh, by a democratically elected leader. So. Uh, but it's that violence, I think, that makes the difference. Right. Um, I, I quickly just want to clarify some things just for my generation and for, for some people out there who may, I think, sometimes conflate fascism with terms like populism and um, nationalism. Uh, can you explain the difference between populism, fascism, and nationalism and whether there is whether they are the same things? Well, um, they're not the same thing, but I think that they in some ways spring from something similar. 
And I do think these are the issues we need to understand. There are divisions in every society. There's no question. Um, and most of them come from economic issues of um, rich versus poor. Um, and uh, how are the uh, means distributed? Have people and their governments lived up to the social contract? I mean, we could go back through all kinds of history to show that there are always divisions. The thing that is then becomes, so the people do want to uh, be recognized in a country and have some role. That is what's populism is basically people wanting to uh, have a sense that the social contract is being kept uh, because what happened uh, historically is um, uh, people gave up their individual rights to a government, which then was supposed to fulfill its responsibilities of protection and taking care of people uh, in exchange for the people being active participants in the societies, um, voting, uh, caring about what happened. And both sides of the social contract break down at various times. And the difference then is, and populism I think is a perfectly legitimate kind of aspect of things, um, but it's only then when that uh, division is exacerbated by this leader who wants to make sure the division gets worse and does, as I mentioned earlier, identify himself with one group at the expense of another. Um, and that scapegoating is a, is a particular problem. Um, nationalism, and let me talk about that a minute because um, I have often talked about the fact that there are two mega trends in the world now with um, both of them having a downside. And one mega trend is globalization. I think a lot of people have benefited from that, um, but it does have a downside because it's faceless. And people uh, do wanna know who they are, what their ethnic or religious or whatever identity is. The only problem is if, if my identity hates your identity, um, or if there is that leader that will make that happen. Um, and then that needs to, uh, nationalism and hyper-nationalism is very dangerous. Um, and it is something that does um, affect uh, the neighbors, obviously, but that same leader that is dividing the people will also say that the group that he's identified with is the one that represents that nation, the identity of that nation, and does in fact make it worse in terms of the people um, that are not part of that group. So they are words that are related, but I think the thing to keep in mind is that uh, collection of facts that I raised, but then um, really uh, identified most severely with the use of violence in order to keep, in order to achieve that power and then keep it. Sure. And you know, you mentioned that one quote, uh, if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, uh, no one will notice it. Would you say, you know, to me, that sounds like it, at first these leaders come slowly and they kind of make these changes slowly, but then they kind of quickly escalate that. Would you say that's the same thing now? Or would you say anything has changed since when Mussolini uh, first kind of said that quote? Well, things have changed. And by the way, um, I, the book is called Fascism, A Warning, mm -hmm. uh, because I had seen some of the things that were happening in the US and other parts of the world, which is why I went back and looked at the history of everything. And when I was really um, going around talking about that book, I did say, and there's a lot of feather plucking going on right now. Uh, and then I said, you can't say those two words together too quickly. 
Um, and so uh, uh, I was concerned about that. Um, and it was a warning to try to see what was going on. I do think that um, I didn't focus on the fact um, that it was more uh, of an alarm than a warning, if I think about what was going on and where it has led to. You mentioned violence and how violence is one um, kind of key component of fascism and so is power. But how much does fear matter? Because we saw this a lot in, with Trump, but how much does fear matter in a population um, as a prerequisite for fascism, kind of apart from the leader? I think fear is a very important part of it because um, if you can make people uh, afraid of something specific, that is very important. And if you then make them afraid of um, uh, the other group of people um, or um, outsiders that are trying to create problems um, or uh, point a finger at those that you need to be afraid of, um, then it is, a, it is really uh, an, ex, uh, an a exhilarating factor to the person that is trying to be the fascist. I mean, it is, it provides uh, fuel for the fire. And that's why, for instance, some of the things that were going on in the United States, in, I mean, I am an immigrant, you know, and so I felt very strongly uh, about the kinds of things that were going on in terms of limiting access to the United States. Um, and uh, and I, I'll never forget coming to the United States, I was 11 years old, we sailed into New York Harbor and seeing the Statue of Liberty. So I regularly was talking about the fact that um, the Statue of Liberty was crying in the last four years. Um, and basically, um, and, and I have, uh, I was at a dinner not long ago and I was asked to describe myself in six words. And I said, uh, worried optimist, problem solver, grateful American. Mm. But uh, to put this together, I think the fear factor was exacerbated by various uh, sayings that the immigrants that were coming were the threat that they were either drug dealers or rapists or uh, general criminals. And that exacerbated the threat and then divided people more and back to that identity issue. And if you can identify, if, uh, you know, as I said, this whole business of nationalism also saying that you represent the country that is being uh, improperly treated abroad, it just exacerbates that hyper-nationalist division of people activities um, and thinks, you know, the person that's uh, promoting all that thinks that he's above the law. So those various pieces go together. Right. And, you know, we, as we're talking about this, um, as we said at the beginning of the conversation, so much of what we're talking about right now, fascism, is something that you've dealt with personally. I'm wondering just for our audience, I think it would be nice for our audience to hear just how fascism has changed your approach to not only diplomacy, but also the substance in your book, um, Fascism, um, A Warning. Well, um, you know, it's interesting. The, as I was writing the book, um, it became clear to me the effect that it had. I mean, first of all, you have to remember I was two years old when we had to leave Czechoslovakia. But I do remember World War II. Um, I, uh, we, my father, as I said, was with the government in exile. Uh, and we lived in London all through the Blitz. And I spent my time uh, in an, not in, at that time in even in an air raid shelter, but in the cellar of an apartment in uh, London in Notting Hill Gate before it got fancy. 
because a lot of refugees lived there. Um, and then uh, spent a lot of time when we moved out of London at a school where all we did was go to air raid shelters and sing a hundred green bottles hanging on the wall. And I kind of grew up with um, under, understanding what had happened. Um, and, but I was a little girl, you know, and then when we moved to Yugoslavia um, and my father was the uh, Czechoslovak ambassador there, by the way, the little girl in the national costume that gives flowers at the airport, that's what I did for a living. Oh. Um, but the strange part in my life is, and my life is made up of a lot of various accidents, is um, that I, uh, we lived in Yugoslavia for two years. Um, and uh, I understand the language and my father um, uh, understood, he had actually been press attache there before the war. Um, and um, so we traveled around. And then the fact that I dealt with the Balkans as the major problem when I was at the UN and Secretary of State made me understand what was going on there. And also kind of the exacerbation of differences among the various um, populations in the former Yugoslavia. Um, so it comes in different waves. And, and there's no question that my later knowledge having learned from my father who was a professor about all the different things that had happened during World War II um, how it, what was going on in the former Yugoslavia when uh, Milosevic was using hyper-nationalism to decide that Muslims um, were the problem in various parts of Bosnia and Kosovo and that they were being ethnically cleansed, not for anything that they had uh, done, but for, who, from, but for who they were. So there are elements of one thing leading to another and it did make a difference in how I saw things happening and that you had to stop it uh, before it got worse. So listening to you, I am hearing Donald Trump. Um, you're not saying it, but all of the examples you're giving um, in terms of even going back to Mussolini and how he took power and how this gradual accretion of power um, and the gradual diminution of the rights of the people um, makes me want to talk to you about Donald Trump and how early on did you see elements, I mean, during his campaign, during his administration, that made you want to give a warning about uh, um, fascism? Well, let me just say, I... Um the campaign, I thought, already began to bring out, you know, whose side was on whose side, that kind of thing, create, exacerbating the divisions. I, uh, and then when he was in office, what I really saw was a lack of respect for any institutional structures, how um, he was using them for his own good, uh, no respect for the rule of law. Uh, and uh, how he was using his attorney generals, um, you know, uh, in a way. And by the way, listening to Merrick Garland um, testifying oh. recently, it was just so clear how different um, things were going to be. Uh, but really, and disrespecting um, Congress, uh, thinking that the Supreme Court uh, was his personal tool, various things like that. And I have to say that I was as I was talking about the book on book tours and to various audiences, 
I was always asked whether I thought Trump was a fascist. And I hesitated to say that. I did say that he was the least democratic president in modern American history. Uh, and so um, I, the thing, frankly, as I had gone through the various things with you all, how I defined it, violence was absent. It is no longer absent. Um, but I've decided that I won't call him a fascist because he might like that. Oh, okay. Then what should we call him? I think he's an authoritarian dictator jerk. <laughs> I can accept that. I can <laughs> definitely accept that. Is there a way to reverse the um, can of worms that he has opened in terms of now that he's out of power and doesn't even have a Twitter account, he still has more than 70 million people who respect, admire, and believe the disinformation that he spews forth. Can that be reversed? What's the way to change that? Has, well, I had, again, also, um, when I was touring with the book, I had my to-do list, um, you know, um, see it, call it out, various ways of talking about it. Um, and I, my final point on my list was to talk to people with whom you disagree um, and find out why that is going on. And I um, actually dared to say that I didn't like the word to tolerance because that's tolerate, to put up with. Uh, in this regard, I thought we needed to figure out how to respect the views of the others and mm -hmm. understand their basis. It's harder to do than you think. I mean, I have tried to have discussions with people with whom I disagree but we need to get to the roots of this specifically. What is the issue? Um, I find very hard to deal with the following thing as an immigrant. When we came to the United States, we came in 1948 and I grew up in America of the 50s. Um, we lived in Denver, Colorado uh, and my father was a professor um, and, uh, and I was just, totally enamored of what the United States was like in every way. And I remember my father <clears throat> saying the following thing. He was very surprised when his students were out uh, waiting on tables or pumping gas when we used to do that. Um, and uh, he said that would never happen in Europe because there was this kind of intelligentsia and a division of classes. And the fact that America did not have that division, at least in the 50s. Mm -hmm. Um, or visibly. The, the other part is that um, I had to kind of learn, I obviously took American history, but I lived in Denver where there, I'd never seen a black person. There were um, some people that were um, um, Mexicans or coming from Latin America, but it was primarily a white society. And it wasn't until I got to college and there were only two uh, black girls in our class. And wow. so um, and it wasn't until we moved to Washington, which is really a black city. And so um, I, I must say I had my kind of uh, rose colored glass approach to the United States. I do think that what we are seeing are more and more divisions, that the economic situation is quite different um, and that there have been people um, who are, I don't know what the right word is, believing, swallowing or accepting some of the uh, fake news that is that is out there, but I think it's going to take time, and I do think we need to know more who the people were 
that voted for Trump uh, and why. Um, and it's going to take work. Uh, and, and I think that is something that uh, we need to know is not going to go away instantaneously. It's just not. And there were causes for it. Um, and there is systemic racism in this country. And there are issues in terms of um, how the law is uh, applied. This is your expertise, you know. <laughs> so um, I really do think that um, those are things that need, to, it's not just going to go away. And I do think, uh, I am very, very troubled um, by some of the members of Congress who, despite what happened, are still kind of believing that, um, you know, either it didn't happen uh, or that there was um, cheating or various things um, in terms of the election. Um, and, and I think it's going to take more work. There's no question. It's not just instantaneously going to disappear. I, I totally agree with you. And it's frightening to me because I don't actually think that members of Congress believe anything that Donald Trump is saying. They know facts and they're ignoring them. Um, but I think what's happened, and I, I wonder what your thought is, that Trump deliberately for his entire administration eroded trust in the institutions of government, the electoral system, the media. He spewed false I mean, lies. Let's call, you know, say it like it is. He, he spoke lies. He used disinformation, um, many of the things that are part of propaganda and fascism. Um, and if we don't stop it, and I have tried to talk to Trump supporters, the problem is as soon as you say, why do you support him? What has he done for you? Tell me a fact. They'll say, well, the election was stolen. Well, tell me a fact. And of course they can't. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, it seems like he was deliberately eroding the government in order to um, enhance his own power and to keep himself in power. Is that, do you think that's what was happening? I, I do think that. I mean, I, I think that um, he is obviously super self-centered and does think he's a stable genius um, <laughs> and that uh, he is encouraged by people around him who are beneficiaries of it in some particular way. Um, and uh, and I think that the question is how one provides really the facts. I, I do think one of the issues here is the role of the media in every single way. Uh, by the way, when I uh, was getting doing my dissertation at Columbia, um, and I was writing about the role of the press in political change, but I was writing about Czechoslovakia during the spring of 1968. And it was interesting in terms of that the people, many of them knew what the truth was because they listened to Radio Free Europe. But what happened was that um, the, the official press was printing whatever the communists wanted them to know. And it wasn't until the official press started writing what the people already knew. It was very interesting. And then I also wrote about the Polish press under um, with Solidarność. And so I do think the media plays a very large role. I do think what I think is most unfortunate, and I always hate to say this, is that uh, Trump got a free ride um, on cable news um, across the board because he's been the news. 
uh, and he is, um, I don't know how to put this, he is in some way, it's like watching some terrible serial, entertaining, and you know, it's The Apprentice gone real or something. And uh, he, he does make news and he's about to do it when he speaks to CPAC again, the yeah. conservatives. And so um, I think that whether it is just purely uh, opportunistic that there are members of Congress that support him, uh, it doesn't really matter whether it's opportunistic, the way it comes across to um, uh, the population is that there are their elected representatives who seem to think that the election was stolen when it's been proven over and over again that it hasn't been. And, and there's now a, um, a trend on Twitter and other social media to beg the media not to cover his speech at CPAC live, that we don't need to give him a platform to spew the big lie about the election and anything else about MAGA is alive and well and coming back. Um, I, I don't know whether the media will do that, but it might be a time when I think that less is more and that yeah. the media should should protect that. How close do you think democracy came to being lost during this last four years? I think, um, you know, when I say I'm an optimist who worries a lot, um, is that um, I don't think it came close to being lost, but I do think that it proved something, two different things. First of all, that democracy is fragile, but also that democracy is resilient. And if you think about what happened on the 6th, which is the horror show of them breaking in and everybody having to leave and all those uh, videos that we've been looking at is they did come back and the government you know they did what they needed to do in terms of the electoral count and uh, they were able to carry on they're carrying on now um, so one has to be understand its fragility but also the resilience um, and and i do think it's going to take work but it's going to take again the citizens to make a difference and trying to go back and understand what has created this. But it's not going away easily. I mean, this is going to take work um, and truth and honesty. And the um, and I don't know, one of the things that is, um, and let me go back, I, I was talking about megatrends. The other mm -hmm. megatrend is technology, which is stunning, obviously, in the way that it's all connected us. And I love to talk about the Kenyan woman farmer who no longer has to walk tons of miles to pay her bills, she can do it over her mobile phone. And as a result of that, can have a life um, and either be with her family or get an education or start a business or run for office, that's changed everything. But also the Arab Spring was uh, motivated by the social media where people got messages from various places to go mm -hmm. to Tahrir Square. The problem was when they got there, they had no idea what to do because their information was all segmented. They didn't know where it had come from. Uh, and um, Tahrir Square was a mess. And the bottom line is, I don't normally say this, but elections uh, were held too soon in Egypt. Mm -hmm. The Muslim Brotherhood was organized. The people in Tahrir Square were not. And then I made up this older man 
who is um, out in the suburbs that wants to come in and open his stall in the market. And uh, Cairo's a mess and he says, to hell with this, I want order. And now they have a general running the place again. So I do think that we need to recognize what social media is doing in terms of dividing up uh, where people get their information, um, where, you know, how they react to it, and that it makes it very difficult uh, to uh, build coalitions or figure out how a political party should work. And so there is such a blessing to the new technology, but it has, in some regard, it's mastered us rather than us mastering it. I, I'm afraid that the silos of information is one of the problems is that no matter what the media puts out, there is a counter narrative on a different media. So that if you talk to someone who listens to Fox, they believe the election was stolen, even though there's no facts. It's just it's put out there. But um, before I turn this back. But I do think if I might say, I do think it's important for all of us to listen to what we disagree with. Absolutely. I actually, uh, when uh, I still drove, I mean, I drive, but I haven't been driving around as regularly. I would listen to right wing radio. Um, and it's kind of amazing that I wasn't arrested because of all my hand <laughs> motions. But, but I do think it's important to listen to what you disagree with, to try to figure out what is motivating it and how to respond. So before I let Victor ask some questions, um, when you were talking about writing about Czechoslovakia in 1968, in I took a year off of law school after my first year, and I worked for the Assembly of Captive European Nations, which was composed of the former leaders of all of the former Soviet countries, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Lithuania, Latvia, Romania. Um, and so that's what I did for a full year. While you were writing that, I was working for the ousted leaders. Uh, just another Oh, that's another great. Commonality. I, I know. Just I, I hadn't thought about that until I was listening to you saying, I was working on my PhD and, and that's when I was there. So but, uh, I took a class from Brzezinski and I took it in 1963. Um, and, and he taught a class on comparative communism, if you can believe it at that point. Oh. It's really amazing. His understanding, he's just, he was just great. So anyway. Um, wow. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, we mentioned the January 6th insurrection, which for me was probably the lowest moment um, of, for our democracy. And, you know, there's been some com commentary recently comparing Trump's January 6th speech um, on the ellipse and the video he showed to um, to that to supporters, to speeches by Hitler. And um, I'm usually reluctant to make such a comparison, but the analysis of the use of propaganda techniques has really haunted me. So I'd like to kind of ask what you thought about that and how closely his remarks resemble the tactics um, and the style in which um, Hitler spoke um, in Nazi Germany. Well, I don't know if I'd compare him to Hitler, but I just definitely do think that that was a speech in order to energize people to, to do something um, that they were kind of inclined to do. I think that's the question, you know, how um, a, I would say, motivational is usually used in a positive way, but somebody who has an agenda can plug into uh, people who are willing to follow that agenda. And um, if one listens to the various things that he said, 
they clearly had resonance to what they were thinking was that um, there needed to be some way to stop what was going on and that one had to fight um, and that it had to be uh, something that had been thought out. I, I think it's very hard when one listens to, I mean, uh, I've only obviously heard Hitler on some movie screen, but I do think that the use of propaganda was something that was the motto of, of uh, the Third Reich with Goebbels and various things in the way that uh, media was used at that point. Um, and so various parts of that that resonate and then salutes and, and you know, kind of belonging to a particular club. But it did strike me as they've been playing that speech over and over again, is that it did have parts in it that really were kind of go out and do this. It's important for me, it's important for you, it's important for the country. Um, you know, you are the patriots, that kind of thing. Very um, uh, motivational language to those who might not have needed a lot of motivation. I think the thing that still has to be discovered is what the um, interaction and interception was of how much, how much planning had gone on ahead of time, how come the people were in Washington that day anyway, all kinds of different things that I think are going to be examined very carefully by um, the justice system, as well as whether now Congress establishes some kind of a commission. Right. Yeah, for sure. And that, and that video that um, I was referencing, that was a video that I'd never seen before, Just Security, which I just started reading, um, does like amazing pieces. And one of their pieces just kind of examined that video at the lips. And it was just stunning to see it was like an ominous music. It was, you know, they, they selected Jewish members of Congress and put them into the video. And it was just really just horrifying to see that that was the video that they put together to show their audience and they acted on it. And um, it's, it's just horrifying. There's probably more to it than we yeah. all know at this right. point. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And it, it'll, it'll take truth to, we, we just have to go, go and uh, find the truth, but it, it'll be hard as you said. Um, you know, I can't help but think, but there's also, um, you know, current day scenarios where fascism is playing out real time. And I can't help but think about uh, Myanmar and what's happening there. Can you kind of talk about Myanmar, what's happening there and kind of the similarities that they might, uh, the similarities between them and us? Well, um, I think that it's a, it's a obviously also a very complicated story. Um, and uh, it had been a country. I went there in, 1996, by the way, um, mm. I had just left the women's conference um, in '95. Um, sorry, in uh, Beijing, uh, and went to visit Hung, Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, but I first had to meet with the SLORC, which was the military government, who was basically patronizing to all the people and kind of felt that. Um, uh, uh, they were in charge and they knew what they were doing. Uh, Aung San Suu Kyi was under house arrest at the time. Um, and I just thought she was the most stunningly brave human being. Um, but part of the problem there has been that um, it is a much more complicated country than most Americans know um, in terms of having a variety of ethnic groups and how they are treated, the Rohingya, 
um, and that um, in order, Aung San Suu Kyi did get elected um, and uh, had the majority party, but she had to make a deal with the military. Um, and then the military was very nervous uh, when um, it was clear that she had more support and continued to have support. And so there was a, there's a coup, but it is a military group that has decided um, that none of the institutional structures can work for any kind of freedom, that they have to be uh, manipulated and controlled by a small group or a powerful group of people in order to make sure that their uh, way is uh, carried out. Um, but it, it's, uh, uh, it's interesting again, and I haven't kind of compared them to us. I mean, um, it, it's, it's different in terms of various parts of this, but the part that is similar is that it is a group of people who think that their way of thinking is superior to everybody else's and takes no recognition of a variety of groups within the country um, and wants to control, that it's a matter of control. Um, and that's an awful lot of what um, dictatorships uh, uh, are about. And they obviously did use the violence um, and, and propaganda. So there are a number of different aspects to it. Right. I think hearing you talk about fascism and what's been going on just really helps provide context for my generation, who we sometimes read in the history books, but we don't get to um, kind of contextualize it. So this has been really helpful. And I just want to ask you, you know, just shifting more to the global scale, um, given the horrific events that followed the January 6th um, insurrection, it seems inevitable that countries around the world no longer view us the ones that they did, you know, that America is this democracy on a shining hill. How much do you think foreign leaders and their citizens have lost confidence in America as democracy um, after January 6th? And I guess, how dramatically did January 6th alter our standing in the world stage? Well, I think that um, our standing on the world stage had begun to fall um, with the Trump administration coming in, uh, in terms of the kinds of things that um, he was saying, uh, America first, um, then his speeches at the United Nations, where uh, it was all about American sovereignty um, and kind of uh, discrediting what uh, the UN was doing and what other countries were doing. Then the haranguing of our allies um, at, and in terms of NATO and how the European Union was behaving um, and saying that we were victims. And so a lot of that had already begun. Um, and one of the things that has been very interesting is actually my last trip abroad was to the Munich Security Conference, which has been a, a, a group of people, world leaders from uh, all the time. And I was there last year at this time, and I'd been going a number of different years, and we were an embarrassment, there's no question. Pompeo and then Secretary of Defense Esper were there, and we were like kind of from outer space and uh, that nobody cared what we had to say. It's interesting that President Biden virtually chose to speak to them uh, earlier last week and that he basically talked about the fact that America was back uh, and that we were going to be uh, participants and, um, and also reliable. The part that is interesting and I think needs to be noted 
is that Angela Merkel and Macron spoke also. And they were somewhat um, apprehensive, I think, or just uh, not quite clear about what America was going to do. And the Europeans haven't sat around waiting for us to get our act together. Um, and even though what Trump had decided was to pull our troops out of Germany uh, and Biden reversed that, um, there is still, you know, what's gonna happen in another four years or um, shouldn't we be having our own policies and understand that we are, um, we need to figure out who we are. And so uh, it has affected um, our stature and our relationship. Um, I do think that um, this won't surprise you, but I don't think we could have a better team than what we have um, with uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris and then Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and the various um, uh, you know, people that we have um, and uh, you know, the Pentagon well run and all kinds of things, but we are going to have to uh, understand that it's gonna take some humility and work. And then that we can't discount that other countries are gonna to wanna to have their own policies. And, and the European Union, by the way, I um, can describe our relationship with the European Union in the following way, which is that when, right after World War II, they were like sick children who were very ready to take whatever medicine we had. Then they became teenagers um, and they wanted to know where their allowance was and that they weren't gonna do the chores we wanted. And then uh, we uh, were working on having an adult relationship. And uh, we were working on that uh, with President Obama. Uh, and then we went back to America first. And, and I think we still don't have that adult relationship where there's kind of respect for different views. But um, I think it's terrific when President uh, Biden says, it's not the example of our power, but the power of our example uh, so they're going to be watching what we're doing, but the, the uh, really bad behavior during the Trump administration is not just going to be erased overnight. And it goes back also a little bit to the things we've been talking about is how do we understand what really happened in this country? Why did it happen? What are we doing to make sure that it, we don't, this doesn't happen again? So they're going to be watching us very carefully as are other parts of the world, what are we gonna do? Um, and so um, it's a time, and by the way, I really uh, do think it's gonna be very important. What is so unfortunate is that uh, you all, Victor, can't travel. I mean, I think part of it is the young people when there are, I, I so believe in exchange programs um, and I believe in it for students in classes um, uh, frankly, American students gain when there are students from other countries that come and vice versa. And so uh, I think your generation has a very, very large role to play in this. By the way, there's, I don't know, you know, no book or speech is ever given that doesn't quote Robert Frost. So one of the quotes that I like is the older I am, the younger are my teachers. And so I really do think that your generation and your capabilities with technology and um, your uh, kind of um, searching for new answers are going to make an awful lot of difference. And we need to listen to what you have to say. Oh, that is very true. Yeah. And um, I, just one brief question 
um, to follow up on that, which was in 2008, you wrote um, a memo to the president-elect uh, giving some advice to President Obama. And I'm just wondering if you've thought about writing a memo to the president, new president, uh, Biden, and if your advice would be the same to him and to Tony Blinken as you wrote in 2008. Well, I haven't thought about it. I might do that. But I do think that um, they, what I find very interesting, there are people who are um, critical slash skeptical because there's so many Obama people in the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. But I actually think it's very good because they have been through, there were some lessons learned by um, the Obama administration in terms of uh, where to act and how and things to say or not to say. Um, and I think that a lot of them have worked together before. They know uh, what needs to be different. But I do think what they need to be very aware of is that the four years made a difference in terms of other countries going forward with their agendas. Um, and I just talked about Europe, but also um, the issue of China um, has uh, enlarged in every single way um, and how we're gonna deal not just with China, but also um, generally um, with Asia. One of the things that did happen under um, Obama was that there was the rebalancing to Asia. And by the way, um, your friends from the captive nations, I am always uh, kind of the, the receptacle of a lot of calls from um, leaders in, in Europe, uh, because I always say to them when I see them, I was born in Europe, uh, which means I'm just like you. I just happen to have been raised in the US, so I can tell you what I think. But um, I, they called and they said, you're abandoning us. And I said, no, you used to be the problem. Now you're part of the solution. We need to work on all of this together in terms of the way we deal with China, for instance, and other parts of the world and Asia. And they are, and I do think that's important, yes. but I think there are questions in terms of how we operate together um, and what are the issues, not just in, with China, but in uh, what they're doing in the region, that there are uh, alliances that are being formed without the United States present. Um, and, and I think we have to be more aware of the kinds of changes that have taken place. And, and so if I were to write a memo, um, I would be talking about how to deal, not linger on the past, but understand that there are lessons and you can't just say we're back. Uh, there's going to be have to kind of prove our uh, our um, you know who we are again with a certain sense of humility and understand that the countries are also reading about what's been going on here. The systemic racism on the issues and human rights is something that resonates in countries where we go around saying that they have to do something about their human rights um, and. Um, and so there are a lot of lessons to be learned, but I think that this is an administration uh, that um, recognizes that. By the way, I sent the book that I wrote to President Obama, and I uh, inscribed it with the audacity to hope that this book will be useful to you. Oh, a great inscription, uh, which actually maybe I'll move to a, an inscription that you sent to me. Uh, one of my prized possessions is 
Read My Pins by Madeline Albright. And in it, um, I don't know if, if those who are watching on YouTube can see this, but you wrote to Jill Wine Banks with appreciation for your service to our country. I love underscored your pins. Yeah, That's yeah. Madeline Albright. So let's talk a little bit about happier subjects um, than the mess that America is in, uh, walking away from treaties, making us unreliable and all that. And so let's, let me start with, um, first of all, both of us obviously love pins and brooches and the stories that they tell. And let's start with the pin that you're wearing today. Uh, well, it actually does relate to what we were talking about, the fascism book. So what happened, as I mentioned, uh, we, I was in London all during World War II, and my father was uh, broadcast over BBC into Czechoslovakia. I was a little girl, and I actually thought he was in the radio uh, when I heard him speaking. <laughs> but the thing that I did know was that every broadcast um, on BBC would open with notes from Beethoven's Fifth, with kettle drums, da 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 dum, and it was uh, in uh, Morse code, uh, B for victory, and so that's why I'm wearing this pin because it really I wore it while we were doing a lot of the fascism stuff. Wow. Well, another pin I know you wear in connection with your book um, because when I heard you speak at the um, Chicago Council on Foreign Relations, you were wearing a pin of the god Mercury. And um, maybe you can tell our audience why you wore that pin. Well, because um, I saw Mercury as Mercury the Messenger. And what that book about was a message was that I was delivering uh, in terms of uh, that we need to pay attention to what was going on. But it's fun to think about what pins to wear. It takes all day. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and then you also have to wear something that will show that particular pin because not all outfits go with all definitely, pins. Very so it definitely adds to the time of getting ready. Right. So how did you get first interested in pins? Was it as in a, just because they're pretty accessories or did you always use them as a message delivery? No, I mean, I, I clearly like jewelry. And so, and I do have some pins that I inherited from my family, but what really did happen, and I did wear them because I thought they were pretty, uh, but when I went to the United Nations, um, I was what is known as an instructed ambassador, um, getting my instructions from Washington about what one needed to do. And it was at the end of the Gulf War and it, the ceasefire had been translated into a series of sanctions resolutions. And my instructions were to make sure the sanctions stayed on. So I said, uh, perfectly terrible things about Saddam Hussein uh, constantly. And so all of a sudden a poem appeared in the papers in Baghdad, comparing me to many things, but among them an unparalleled serpent. So I happened to have a snake pin and I decided to wear it when I talked about uh, Saddam Hussein and Iraq. So um, uh, all of a sudden of that, uh, this poem uh, as I said, compared me to many things, but among them, uh, this unparalleled serpent. So what happened was then, um, I think you know that um, at the end of meetings, usually uh, the ambassadors go out and there's a gaggle of press and they 
picked up the fact that I was wearing this pin and they asked me why. And so I said, because Saddam Hussein compared me to an unparalleled serpent. And then I thought, well, this is fun. And I was in New York and I went out and I bought a lot of costume jewelry to depict what I thought we were gonna do on any given day. So on good days, I wore flowers and butterflies and balloons. And on bad days, I wore carnivorous animals and spiders and things. <laughs> and the other ambassadors noticed. And if you remember, President Bush had said, read my lips, no new taxes. Yes. So I then said, read my pins. And that's how it started. Um, and, and I had so much fun with it. So for instance, uh, the other ambassadors did get used to it in some way. But then when I became Secretary of State, uh, the Russians were uh, uh, spying on the State Department. They were, and so we found the guy um, it, it, uh, sitting outside listening to the things that we were doing. So we did what um, diplomats do, which is demarche Moscow and say, don't do that. But the next time I met Primakov, who was my counterpart, the Russian foreign minister, I wore this huge bug and he knew exactly oh. what I was doing. So I've had a lot of fun with it. Uh, and, um, um, you know, but, but I have to say this and you and I were talking about the tiny jewel box where you have bought pins. So when there was a period where my name was being mentioned for secretary of state, but I really didn't think it was gonna happen but I went to the tiny jewel box and they showed me this glorious eagle that was an antique, um, but it was fairly steep in price. And I thought to myself on the off chance that I get to be secretary of state, I'm going to go and buy that eagle. And so I did get to be secretary of state and I wore it um, as, we, as I was being sworn in. So I'm in uh, the Oval Office holding the Bible with my hand up and I look and this pin is just kind of waving around. Um, and all, all I, instead of you know swearing my allegiance, I thought this pin is gonna fall off. Um, and it was an antique and I hadn't kind of bothered to fasten it properly. So uh, that's my secretary of state pin. But, but um, there's so many fun stories about it and they are in that book. And, and my whole point is to try to make foreign policy less foreign with the various stories that go with the pins. Well, I, of course, have adored the book since it came out and highly recommend it to anyone interested in either diplomacy, your sense of humor, or the beauty of pins and their messages. And since you mentioned the tiny jewel box, the pin I'm wearing today comes from there. And it isn't a message pin, which is what I've been wearing since 2017 when I went on MSNBC, but it is just a pretty pin, but it does have a history because it's the pin that I wore by chance the day that I cross-examined Rosemary Woods in the uh, office adjacent to the Oval Office. And so it has a very special meaning to me, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be wearing it. But do you have a favorite pin? Is there something that you just Well, I love? have actually two favorite pins. One is um, at this ceramic heart that my daughter made when she was um, in grade school. Um, and um, so I say it, my daughter made it and they said, well, how old is your daughter? And uh, you know, she's like 50. And so Katie says to me, you've got to tell him I made it when I was a child. <laughs> uh, 
so that's one. The other one um, is what I call my Katrina pin. And um, I was in, went to New Orleans after Katrina and um, I had spoken at the World War II Museum there. And then there's a dinner and this man comes up to me with a box um, and he said, my father is sitting over there. He is a, a veteran and he earned Purple Hearts. Um, and he opens the box and it is this pin with amethysts in it. And he said, my father gave it to uh, my mother on their 50th wedding anniversary. And she died as a result of Katrina. And we want you to have the pin. And I said, I can't possibly take that pin. And they said, no, you have to. It really meant a lot to her and to us and she liked you. And so I have the pin and it's both the objects, they're inanimate, but they really deliver a very strong message. And so inanimate objects can in fact have meaning. Oh, absolutely. And as you say, it's it's fun to be able to predict what might be in the news cycle so that you have the appropriate pin to wear at the right moment. Um, and and it, for me, it would be very hard to pick my favorites. But your story reminds me of one pin that I received uh, from the executor of a fan after she had passed away. And the note that came with it was her request that I wear that pin when Donald Trump was gone. And it's um, a, a it's a dangling watch. It looks like she might have been a nurse because it's the kind of thing nurses used to wear so they could see the time. Um, and I wore it on inauguration day. Um, although I mentioned to you earlier I did change pins in the middle of the inauguration when I saw Lady Gaga's eagle, <laughs> which was so amazing. I switched to the largest eagle that I have in my collection. Yes, no. uh, so anyway, well, I that's sent Lady Gaga, a copy of my book. Um, oh, you definitely I did, you know, <laughs> said she outdid us all on everything. So anyway, that is amazing. How do you store your pins? Because you, I mean, oh. I, I well, You've first now of all, given them the pins that have the foreign policy stories had actually been circulating around the U.S. going to presidential libraries. Um, and I would go and explain the stories that went with them. And so I, um, the State Department is, has opened a diplomacy museum, and I'm going to give all those pins to them mm. uh, because they really do tell foreign policy stories. I have since then gotten what I call my pity pins. A lot of people have sent me pins because they feel sorry for me because I don't have the the original ones. And I have a ton of them um, and I hang them up um, in kind of, they look like, you know, like little shoe bags, but mm -hmm. just little uh, pockets. And um, when I was writing my pin book, um, originally I put them all on the bed and then I decided to organize them by species. And so I kind of tried to, to do that but I do have a lot of them and they are fun um, but it is a problem definite problem to figure out what to wear these days so absolutely in preparing for talking to you today I spent a lot of time talking to Victor about what pin I should wear and at one point I had my dining room table covered <laughs> with possibilities my husband came in as I was moving them around he said what game are you playing 
no, this is really important. I have to have the right pin for today. So, uh, and, and I changed it literally at like 2 a.m. last night. I thought, no, I'm going to wear the one from Tiny Jewel Box because she mentions Tiny Jewel Box in her book. So uh, it, it's anyway, um, what can I say? Um, it's it's just been an amazing time talking to you. Um, if you have a few more minutes, we Victor has a, a clip we'd love to play okay, very um, good. and Great. have you watch uh, yeah. talking about your multiple other careers besides diplomacy, besides a PhD, besides your pin collection. And, oh, I, I guess we should mention, you mentioned um, the drum that starts the Beethoven. Yeah. But you're also a drummer, if I understand correctly. Is that right? Well, I, that, every story I have is, is true, but fairly insane. So <laughs> what happened when I um, became Secretary of State, there's an organization called the Thelonious Monk Institute that has really um, been very supportive of young jazz people, uh, play, uh, musicians. And I had them all to the State Department. And then... Um, I decided that it would be an organization that I wanted to be attached to because jazz has really been our best ambassadors. And mm -hmm. one of the things that really did happen in Czechoslovakia uh, was that there was initially something called a jazz section that played jazz, but then they became a political force. And so mm -hmm. I just know that music is our best ambassador. So what happened was that, uh, I had been invited to go to the White House during the Obama administration when the uh, Chinese, actually Xi Jinping, when he was vice president, came. And Chris Bodie was there playing his trumpet as um, entertainment for that. And then what happened was that um, I was invited to go to the concert that he was giving at the Kennedy Center. Um, mm. And uh, the organizers of it said, we need to go see him before the performance because afterwards it'll be crazy. So we go down and he says to me, um, I sometimes when there's a known person in my audience, uh, I ask them to play the drums with me. Will you play the drums with me? And I said, sure, I don't play the drums. So anyway, I did go and I played the drums with him uh, and it was amazing. It was really so much fun. So then what happened that year the Thelonious Monk Institute, which is now known as the Herbie Hancock Institute, mm -hmm. decided that that was the year that the competition was about drums. So I was being honored. I played the drums again. Um, and Aretha Franklin sang Respect to oh Me. Oh, my God. So that's my musical career. Oh, that's quite a musical <laughs> career. Yeah. That is remarkable. Aretha Franklin and, oh, my God. It's you know, too that, amazing. Too amazing. <laughs> oh my god! I just want to say, um, you know, I don't think pins will ever be replaced. But I just want to say, you know, in, in this pandemic time, I've been exploring masks, and I think maybe for me, my my message will be masks from now on. Well, although although Jill good. did send me yes. one pin of Nixon, and so I have two pins: one intergenerational politics pin, another of Nixon. So that that is all I have. Um, but you're not wearing either of them today. <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> All right. So, you know, speaking of other careers, you were uh, you have also been features, featured as uh, an actress in Madam Secretary, which is one of my favorite shows. And last night I was just um, looking online and I found a clip of you. Um, and this was one of my favorite scenes. It was you with three. No, it was you with two other secretaries of state. And then um, with the 
Secretary of State on Madam Secretary. And I just want to play that for our audience really quickly. Let me just say for the audience who yeah. didn't see that, that was Hillary Clinton, Madeleine Albright, and Colin Powell. And Madeleine is wearing a fabulous eagle pin in that. Now that was the Secretary of State pin that I have. Not my eagle, but one that I got when I was Secretary of State. Wow. Beautiful. I have to tell you about my television career. When I, what happened was um, I was out of office and I get a call from the um, executive producer of Gilmore Girls, the program that mm -hmm. I had watched because it was about a mother and daughter. Mm -hmm. And they said, um, would you mind if somebody played you on Gilmore Girls? And I said, yes, I mind. I want to play myself. <laughs> so that was my debut. Then I was asked to do Parks and Recreation uh, because mm -hmm. uh, Amy Poehler has picked up on her behind her desk of me and some man came in to ask her for a date and he said, is that your grandmother? And she said, anybody who doesn't know who Madeleine Albright is, I'm not going out with. <laughs> so then what happens is they begin the series of, Gil of uh, Madam Secretary. And Taylioni called me up and said, can we have lunch? I want to know what the job is really like. So we had this conversation. I thought, I'm sitting here having this long conversation with this actress about the job I did. This is crazy. And then the writers kind of got interested. And I am a great rationalizer. And I decided that it's worth, these programs are important because of the messages they're sending. Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to watch Army Wives, you know, and various things because there are always messages. So I got involved with them and I had been on it once before. And then some of you have heard about the, um, the uh, big dinners that are held with the press. And CBS asked me to go uh, with Taylioni to it and we're on the red carpet and people are yelling Madam Secretary and she's the one that turns around. <laughs> but then this particular program that you showed, um, it was totally scripted, but I managed to get a non-scripted line in there. Uh, when we sat down, I said, because there had been some horrible event at the White House and she had summoned the secretaries, their predecessors in, and I said, um, it is wonderful when the current secretary calls her predecessors in to consult. We used to do that all the time, and they left it in. Oh, that was such a remarkable clip. And I just want to ask, so your, your book, Madam Secretary, do you know if the show is named after your book? I have no idea. I think it probably was. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I'm very glad they did it, because I really do think it raised a lot of issues for people um, in terms of what really is a problem, how the operation works. Um, and then the fact that, that uh, public figures actually do have lives, um, you know, and uh, um, the, um, the fact that um, she had children and all the, the various things, you know. But I, I uh, well, you know, I, I'm a busybody in many ways. I mean, West Wing, when it was being filmed, was uh -oh. being filmed around the corner from my house. And I went up and I told them, you are having um, 
the secretary of the chief of staff make all the decisions. You don't have a national security advisor. That's the person that really needs to be on in it. So then Anna Devere Smith comes on to do that. So whoa. Anyway, I have a good time. Yeah. I do have so much fun, and I have to tell you. That, that that seems like such a fun life to have as an actress and just so many varied experiences. And, you know, like Jill said, you know, you're just an inspiration for so many generations and you haven't let up one bit. Um, you know, since being Secretary of State, you've taught at Georgetown, which my friend has told me all about. Um, she hasn't taken any of your classes, but she just um, is in awe of your um of you being at Georgetown. Um, you founded the Albright Stonebridge Group and you've written many books. And You've also broken so many glass ceilings for every generation of women that follow in your footsteps. And I think it would be perfect to end this podcast to hear your advice for uh, women in my generation and what advice you have for them. Well, first of all, I really do think that um, the world is better off when women are involved in decision-making in any number of different aspects. I think that women and men do approach issues differently. Um, this is a generalization, but I, I do think that women, because we multitask so much, have more peripheral vision um, in terms of the number of things that need to be done. Uh, men, I think, may think more deeply about one subject, but I really do think that it's important to have women in the room for any number of reasons. And I don't think that um, any young woman should be turned off by the difficulties of, of getting ahead and really uh, understanding that we have a role to play um, and that um, it's not easy. Uh, that, and I do believe that women have to work extra hard, but I've also said a very important thing. It is much easier if there's more than one woman in the room and therefore women need to support each other. And the most famous thing I ever said was that there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. It was so famous, it ended up on a Starbucks cup. Um, but I really do think it's an important part um, and that we as women can't be so hard on each other in terms of being judgmental or projecting our own sense of inadequacy on other women. Um, and I think that um, it's very important to know that um, in some ways you, you, can't, you don't start by having a big job. You have to work your way up into it and you have to be dependable. And there is no one way. Everybody has to work out their own way of doing things. And I think that's true of young men also at this time. And, and I really do think that your generation is very different in terms of the way you treat your women, uh, friends and colleagues. And I think that makes a big difference. And the world is better off when we work together. As Victor said, you've broken a lot of glass ceilings and I know uh, from your book that you and I both have the breaking glass ceiling yep. pin. Um, and my last question for you is, when will we get to a point and how do we get to a point where we won't have to be breaking glass ceilings, when men and women will have equal opportunities, sexism will go away, gender bias will go away? Is there a way we can get to that? Well, I think we have to get to it. But it's not um, easy. I mean, and it's not necessarily um, a straight path. We can see that. Um, there are setbacks. I think we have taken a big step forward by having Kamala Harris as vice president. Um, I did work for Geraldine Ferraro when she was running to be mm -hmm. vice president. 
long time ago. And, um, and it, uh, but I think having Vice President Harris makes, is going to make a big difference. But I think we also have to keep looking for setbacks, that there are those that do not believe in this, of having women equal to men. Um, and, and so um, I think it's something that um, you never can take for granted. Um, and we can't take for granted that every woman agrees. That's part of the issue, right. frankly. Um, and so, um, and, and I think that we need to understand that it constantly needs to be explained that the world is better off when men and women are working together um, in order to heal the divides. Because that's what, to go back to our original conversation, it really, divisions in society is what then leads to demagogic rulers who take advantage of that to exacerbate that division. And we need to get over that and need to understand that working together uh, is the only way that this is going to, to op that we really uh, do have to think about how we can cooperate. This Secretary Albright, this has been my favorite conversation <laughs> and an honor. So and both of us are tripping over ourselves to say <laughs> what an honor it is. But thank you so much for being with us. I hope everyone will read all of your books. Uh, the fashionism one is essential reading in today's world, but also read my pins is essential reading for all of us. Uh, so as is Madam Secretary and your memoirs, um, I, it, you've just been so prolific and wonderful in your career and the fun you've had and taking advantage of everything that this country has to offer. So thank you for being with us. And I can't wait to see what your next chapter is. Well, I have enjoyed this conversation so much and having a chance to talk with both of you. Really uh, terrific. Barry, thank you for asking me to be part of this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. So much you. For being on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Intergenerational Politics. We hope you enjoyed it. We always love reading through your comments and your reviews, so let us know your thoughts about this episode of Intergenerational Politics on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. You can also feel free to share our podcast with a family member or a friend to make sure that everyone is a part of intergenerational dialogues. Thank you so much again. See you next time.